This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast. I'm William Moore, the Spectator's Features Editor. And I'm Laura Prendergast, the Spectator's Executive Editor. In this week's episode, recorded on the day Boris Johnson resigns as Prime Minister, we'll be looking at what happens next. We'll also be hearing about the Russian emigres ready to return to fight for Russia. And finally, do we really need a 20 mile an hour speed limit? First up, James Forsyth, our political editor, has written this week's cover piece looking at the next Tory leadership contenders. He joins us now along with our deputy political editor, Katie Walls. James, we're recording this on a historical day in British politics. Prime Minister Boris Johnson resigned this morning and gave a speech around lunchtime. What was your initial reaction to his speech? I thought the speech was the beginning of the great Boris Johnson betrayal narrative. This was not a speech saying, I've made mistakes, I get why people have lost faith in me, I'm standing down. It was a speech that described the decision to remove him as leader as eccentric, pointing out that the Tories are only a few points behind in the polls at the moment. You know, he talked about the have a herd, had kind of stampeded, and kind of essentially implied that his MPs had panicked under kind of media sledging, and, and there was no kind of recognition of his own role in his downfall. And I think this is Boris Johnson's history, and he intends to write it, and it's going to be kind to him. And I think he is going to, you know, all of his speeches, columns, autobiography, I think, are all going to to push this this narrative that, you know, here was this great undefeated leader who was removed by their MPs. And it did remind me of uh, a couple of party grandees who'd said to me in recent days, but they actually thought it would be good for the Tory party to go to a no-confidence ballot because it would be a, a cathartic moment because it would reveal that this was not some kind of small clique that had removed the Prime Minister, that something like 80% plus of the parliamentary party had lost faith in him. And I think it was quite telling that when you looked down Downing Street as Boris Johnson was delivering that speech, you know, there were a group of MPs who'd been kind of urged to come and show support. That was not a, a, a large group of people. Katie, in your political column this week, uh, you described that even surrounded by resignations left, right and centre, when Boris was had the suggestion put to him that he should resign, his response was, um, I'm quoting here, and apologies for the bad language to the listeners, but uh, he said, fuck that. What changed between his mindset then and uh, led to the, the scene we, we saw today? Well, I think any other leader would have resigned before Boris Johnson did. We had a period yesterday where it was getting to the point, you know, cameras camped outside Downing Street. I was still outside Downing Street for a period. And all these cabinet ministers going in, the bulk of which were saying to the Prime Minister, you need to go, otherwise we're going to resign. And up until you know late last night, Downing Street was still fighting. They were saying, no, Boris Johnson was getting into these conversations of ministers and saying, I have a huge mandate. I'm not going anywhere, despite their lobbying. And then you had Downing Street briefing out late last night that they were looking forward to filling roles. They'd be, be filling these new positions from 8am this morning. Um, you had one figure go so far to say, that it was actually great because slimming down the government was in line with conservative values of slimming down the state. I think the general point being that 
the Prime Minister does not go over convention uh, or rules in the way that others have. And you can see then how long and how painful this has dragged out, including the speech, which was not a self-reflective speech or one where I think you got the impression that Boris Johnson thought he had done anything wrong whatsoever when it came to how it got to this point. Instead, it was almost others who had brought him there. I think what effectively happened is today, when they actually got to the point of trying to fill those positions, it became pretty clear that they could not be filled. And while you can talk about slimming down the size of government, if you can't fill a third of your cabinet, potentially half of your cabinet, because there were more cabinet resignations this morning. You had Brandon Lewis, you had Simon Hart late last night, you had Helen Waitley, um, uh, figure in the Treasury, also resigning. It was going to get to the point where the government could not actually function. Um, and I think even Boris Johnson, with all his bluster and bullishness, would have to accept the fact that if you've got only got around a third of the seats around the cabinet table full, you're not going to be able to go much further. I also think the other factor relates to how long Boris Johnson can potentially stay, which is he is clearly trying to stay for the summer up into the autumn as prime minister. And I think that given the whips were telling him that he could, uh, you know, in the confidence vote they were expecting next week, when the rules were changed, he would get around 60 votes, tiny, that perhaps a way to have more negotiating power is to agree to go and try and go in your terms. I think the problem for Boris Johnson, and this is again a moving picture, I think all commentary will be for the next few days, because MPs have found him so tricky to get out of that building when anyone else would have gone over the past 48 hours. There is certainly a high level of uncomfortableness about the idea of him staying for a few months and what he might do in that time. So actually on that point then, Katie and James, do you think the Tories will try to speed up the leadership race in some way to kind of minimise the amount of time that, that Boris will have left in Downing Street? Or is that just not feasible? Well, there is another way to, to resolve the conundrum that, that you that you that you raise, Will, which is for Dominic Raab to step in as interim prime minister, for Boris to leave with immediate effect. I think Dominic Raab, given how marginal his seat is, is highly unlikely to run for the Tory leadership, and that would that would enable you to say, right, you know, we can have it, we can have a leadership contest without having to kind of to worry about the timetable and this. I think the one thing that is certain is that those involved in in crafting the timetable for the Tory leadership want the new leader in place by conference. I think that's partly because conference is a showcase event. I think also there's partly a fear that if it, if you don't do that, Boris Johnson will try and use his conference speech to leave the activists saying, oh, why did the MPs get rid of him? You know, uh, And I think there's that danger. I think there's also a, a split in the Tory party about what the timetable should be. Some people say, get this done fast, new leader in place by the beginning of September latest. So you do the parliamentary rounds before parliament breaks up later this month. Then you basically do hustings around the country with the members over August and then a vote. Other people say, look, some of these candidates who are running, like Suella Braverman, the, the former Attorney General, they are not well known among the members. They're not well known among the even that one among the parliamentary party. So why not give this time? Why not wait until September to start the process? And, and then you'll basically get to kick the tires on all the candidates. And so I think that we wait to see how that is resolved when this new 22 executive is elected on Monday. And James, looking ahead to the leadership contest, which is what your cover does this week, who are the kind of the runners and riders, but who are the who are the kind of front runners? So right now the front runner is if he can if it is clearly Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary. YouGov polling out today confirms what uh, the Conservative Home Survey, which has a good record, shows, which is that in a runoff he would beat 
every candidate. The big question mark against ben Wall- about Ben Wallace is no one knows what he thinks about domestic policy. All the jobs, he's a former soldier, and all the jobs he has held in politics relate to that kind of security field. So he's been a Northern Ireland minister, he's been the security minister, and now he's been defence secretary. I think Katie and I would think ourselves pretty close students of the Tory party, but I would struggle to say where Ben Wallace stands on you know tax and spend, public service reform, all of that stuff. So I, I, I think that that is the, the uncertainty there. Then, I mean, there's also the kind of electability question, you know, who, who is most likely to win? I think that is something that Tory MPs care about a lot. I think that if we had been recording this podcast a week ago, I would have said that Nadeem Zahawi had a lot of kind of transferability, the ability to pull votes in from all parts of the Tory party. But I think he has not had a great 72 hours in that, you know, he accepted the job of Chancellor. Then less than 24 hours later, he was going into Downing Street telling Boris Johnson to go. Then today he was releasing a statement saying, I'm not resigning, but I think you should go. So I, I think I think he has not had a great time. And so, you know, we, we wait to see. And then obviously there are the two ministers who resigned in in, in Rishi Sunak and, and Sajid Javid. And, and just on Nadine Sahori, I was looking at, uh, I was on the Mail Online website earlier, and top of Mail Online was a picture of Nadine Sahori saying, is this the most Machiavellian man in politics? How Nadine Sahori plunged the final knife in Boris just a day after being made chancellor. Um, now, that's one spin in it, but I do think, while, while MPs might not be at that level, in terms of thinking he is the most Machiavellian man in Britain, I think it's definitely added to doubts about whether it is shady or there's a lack of political judgment. Uh, and Katie, in terms of some of the other names that James mentions in his piece about possible leadership candidates, uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on some of their chances. You know, figures such as Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak, who obviously played such a pivotal role at the start of this week. I mean, do you think they stand uh, much of a chance? Yeah, I, I think. Everyone stands a chance in this leadership contest because there's going to be so many candidates that's pretty unpredictable. I mean, I think in the past hour, we've had Robert Buckland suggest that he might run for this. We've had Steve Baker suggest he might run. And last night we had Sue Ella Braverman suggest she might run or suggest she would run. So that's three new candidates. I think in terms of Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak, Sajid Javid was technically the first to resign. I think Sajid Javid's team are quite keen to lean into that. Um, You saw his big speech yesterday, very damning. And, And I think from supporters of Sajid Javid, I've definitely got the impression they want to say, you know, he is the one who stood up to the problems. Personally, I think that given the writing was very much at least close to drying on the wall by the time those resonations came. The cabinet were clearly the final trigger in all this, but the level of unhappiness in the party had risen to such a degree. I don't you can say it's just down to these resonations that things came to pass. I think that's why we're talking about this now, not in a few months' time, sure. And then I think, so I think Sajid Javid will go on that ticket. I think it's interesting if you look at Rishi Sunak in the sense that I think both Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak will face some opposition from Boris Johnson loyalists because they will blame them for bringing the events to the point that they did. But Ben Wallace is coming out on top in membership polling, as James just mentioned. There's a poll out today which says, which finds that if you're looking at the public and you're going through all the Tory candidates versus Starmer, the only person who would be ahead is Sunak, and that's only by one point. Every other candidate has Starmer ahead. I think it's worth pointing out that because Rishi Sunak is, is better known than some of those other candidates, such as Ben Wallace and so forth, therefore you have a situation where... As the campaign goes on, that could change because you have to factor in awareness. But I think for all of Rishi Sunak's problems, and there have been many, if you think that he was seen as almost a walk-in candidate and then was written off, I don't think he's out of the game yet. 
And James, just to finish on, Boris obviously said he wanted to be world king and his time, certainly as our prime minister, is coming to an end. What do you think he's going to do next? So I, I think he will earn a lot of money, but I think it will be easier for him to earn a lot of money than various other past prime ministers because he will write and tell his own story. And so I expect that we will we will see the Boris Johnson autobiography will be in all good bookshops um, sooner than you than you might uh, sooner than you might think. I think he'll do his columns. And will, I think, will he stay on as a backbench MP? Do you think? Um, I think for a while because I think there is, I think part of the reason he was so reluctant to go is I think there is this part of him that thinks that something might turn up. Uh, I talked to one of the cabinet ministers who were part of the de- delegation who, t- who told him to go. And I said, well, why, why isn't he going? You know, like, what good does it do him to fo- to to wait until Tuesday and there's no confidence vote when he he was clearly going to get shellacked? And their view is that you know he just thinks that something might turn up, that you know the mood might turn back a bit, that, that you know he might somehow get a break. Uh, and so I, I suspect he will stay on as a backbench MP for a little bit. I think that. Whoever is his successor, I think we'll find Boris Johnson popping up with lots of solutions to the problems that they are encountering. And I think that you know, I think that for a certain type of certain people in the in the, in the parliamentary party and in the Tory party in the country, you know, he will always be their lost king. You know, the, 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 you know, and that the, the, there will be this myth of this undefeated leader who won this big majority who was then thrust out, and people say, and and, and I think he. I think I think this is a myth that he will stoke, and I think I thought it was, I thought it was telling that that resignation statement, as, as Katie said, was not one of someone saying, "Look, I've made mistakes, I'm going." It was more my eccentric colleagues have decided to remove me, and I'm I'm sad about that. Well, James and Katie, thank you very much for joining us. Next, Sean Thomas has written a piece in the magazine about Russian emigres he met on his trip to Armenia. Sean joins us now, along with Gabriel Gavin, a reporter based in Moscow. Sean, for our listeners, could you set the scene that you describe in the magazine about the meeting you had with two Russian emigres in a small hamlet in Armenia? Sure. It was in South Armenia, a little village called Gnishik. I think I've got that right, which is up in the uh, Armenian Caucasus, a very pretty place. I went there. I didn't, didn't go there to meet anybody. I went there because I read that it was very beautiful, these valleys with bears and leopards and, and stunning forests. Yeah, so I drove up there from the, the Armenian winelands. It took about half an hour. And then I arrived in this eco-lodge overlooking this canyon. And there were two Russian emigres drinking away and, and, and chattering. And we got talking. Can you give our listeners a sense of some of the, the conversation that you had and their, their ideas about the war and how it was going? Yes. We, I mean, we tried to avoid politics. We did try at first. But, you know, it's so huge, especially in their lives, Ukraine. And I kind of guessed why they were in Armenia was because they were running away from the war and the Putin regime. And I was, I was quite right. They were both in their mid-30s, obviously quite wealthy, professional, as I say, very urbane. That She ran art galleries, he was in IT. And we talked about Ukraine and how they first heard about the war. They were on holiday in Egypt. And she said, Ludmila said, she, could, she picked up her phone in the morning and she looked at it in complete horror and disbelief, as we did in the West. She just could not believe that Putin had invaded Ukraine. And then they tried to get home, which was very difficult for Russians. I didn't really realise until I spoke to these people how their phones stopped working, Google Pay stopped working, Apple Pay was defunct. They couldn't get Ubers. They couldn't, get, they couldn't use their credit cards. They had to pull enormous amounts of cash 
out of the ATM in Cairo with huge queues of Russians to get enough money to buy a massively overpriced air ticket home. They had a lot of problems getting back. There's one line in your piece that I want, I want to quote for our listeners because I, it, it was extremely striking to me. You know, I hate the war, but we have to win it. I'm scared that Putin will order mobilization, but if he does, I will fight. Russia is my country. Russia must win the war. So it's a sort of, even for the, the, the Russians abroad, the ones who uh, love the West, the ones that hate the war, they still want to win it, which is quite a striking thing. Yeah, that was a really unexpected revelation. I mean, I, they told me how they were alienated from their, their pro-Putin parents, how they fled Russia to Armenia so they could work, and they didn't really want to be in Russia in that atmosphere. So I was kind of expecting this anti-war sort of motif to continue through the conversation. Then suddenly the guy says, Mikhail said, Russia must win this war. I am Russian. It is, he basically said, without quite using those words, it is existential, you know, we cannot be defeated. And he, and he also said, I don't want to go to war and I, don't, I hope Putin does not mobilise us all, but if he does, I will go and fight and we will win. And Gabriel, what do, you, what do you make of that? Do you think that's a sort of typical outlook of wealthy metropolitan Russians? Yeah, well, since the outbreak of the war, I think a lot of my work has focused on speaking both to young Russians who agree with the war and young Russians who disagreed with it, young Russians who've left. And I think it definitely resonates with a lot of the conversations that I've been having. I think there's, it's very easy to assume that people who've left have left because they have political objections to the war. But actually, the vast majority of those I've spoken to, they were more concerned about their own financial well-being, about losing their job, about losing their ability to travel, about the collapse of the ruble, and about the inconvenience that came with Western sanctions. And actually, I think one of the things that people were most upset about and you saw the biggest outpouring of grief in the kind of Russia social sphere about was the blocking of Instagram. So you've got bombs falling on cities like Kharkiv, Kiev, and people are really worried about losing access to their influencer accounts. So I think there has been a sense that the only things that have really disrupted Russians, the lives of ordinary Russians, have been these kind of almost minor inconveniences since the start of the war, which is so opposite to the situation that Ukrainians have found themselves in, where it's an everyday existential battle. But I think the point you make about um, this being a war that we need to win, even if we don't agree with it, is also a sentiment I've come across a lot. Uh, I think a lot of people would say, even though I don't necessarily agree with the premise, I don't necessarily believe that Ukrainians are fascists or that NATO's conspiring to just take apart Russia. They think, I'm a Russian, I'm a patriot, my dad was in the army, I did conscription maybe, and it's my duty to support my country. And Russia is a country where patriotism is seen as a good in and of itself. It doesn't matter whether your country is right or wrong, you support it. And the idea that you would oppose something so fundamental as what's being painted as an existential war would basically be an act of treason, I think, in the, in the minds of many Russians, even if they disagree with the regime that's behind it. So I was in Moscow when the sanctions initially began rolling out in the outbreak of war. And there was a real atmosphere of fear. And what does this mean for my job? What does this mean for my ability to earn a living? How's my family, etc.? And people really were eager to go and make sure that they could have some continuity of life elsewhere, especially young people. And so places like Turkey, Armenia, Georgia were big destinations for people to go to. But actually what a lot of found since, and a lot of the conversations I've had with people have been about the fact that they get there and actually if they can't work online, they don't work in IT, they actually can't really earn any money. And a lot of these places, they don't speak the local language, they don't speak Armenian, they don't speak Georgian, they don't speak Turkish. And so they can't compete in the job market. As a result, I think a large number have ended up going home. Uh, I know lots of Russians who left the war and said, you know, this is an absolute, I mean, the word everyone always uses is, is gifts, basically means cluster F. And that's uh, what everyone has said. But then after a few months when it's clear that the, the situation is 
at least stable domestically, they've been happy to return home. And they may well, when they're there, miss McDonald's and Apple Pay and things, but at least they're home, at least they have access to their money and so on. Well, Sean, in, in regards to what Gabriel described as the financial well-being of wealthy Russians affected by sanctions, I mean, that certainly applies to the two people you spoke to for the sake of your piece, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, there were two times when they were really passionate. And one of them was that striking moment when Mikhail said, I will fight, Russia must win. And the other time they were really passionate was when they both talked about sanctions really hurting. And they didn't go into specifics, but... They both said, my God, they are terrible. You have to stop them. And of course, my feeling was, well, if they're terrible and they're hurting, they're probably working. So um, who knows? Gabriel, you, you've written the Spectator, for the Spectator website before that there is a, something of a generational divide among Russian elites uh, when it comes to the attitudes towards the war. I wonder if you could explain a little bit more about that for our listeners. Yeah, well, I did a, really, a piece I was really excited about a few weeks ago for the Spectator in which I looked at the mood in Moscow's Diplomatic Academy, its prestigious diplomatic training university, Mugimor. And I spoke to lots of young students, and the generational attitudes of this war generally are that young people tend to be more opposed to it. They tend not to buy into some of the Soviet nostalgia. They tend to be, especially wealthy urban people who are inevitable to people who end up in the elite universities, sadly. They tend to be very westernized. They tend to like traveling abroad. They tend to like luxury brands. They tend to like using Apple Pay on a metro and even the basic things like that. And as a result, this war has affected them far more and the consequences of this war have affected them far more than the old generation of Russians who actually could have grew up in under communism and could take or leave integration with the West. And as a result, I think it was really interesting to look at, well, what's the mood in Mugimor? What's the mood in, among these you know, young elite diplomatic circles? And the picture was a really, really dire one. Large numbers of people who I spoke to said, you know, I really feel morally opposed to this war. I basically now have to choose. Do I sacrifice eight years of study and getting 100 in every exam I possibly could in order to get into the diplomatic service? Or do I quit on principle and resign myself to kind of wandering the earth as a political martyr? And if you know anything about Russians, I think the overwhelming pressure is, no matter what your personal preferences are, your personal views, people tend to sacrifice them in order to provide for their families because this is a country with a very recent history of scarcity and a real fear of kind of joblessness. And, and if, you, if you've attained those grades and you've just broken into the kind of outer circle of the government, it's really unlikely that you're going to turn around and go, well, just because I disagree with this means I'm going to, I'm going to give up my potential earnings, my future, my home, etc., etc. There, were, there are obviously people who are ideological supporters and fanatical ideological supporters of the war who fought into the narrative very, very early on that NATO is an existential threat to Russia and that Ukraine is a vehicle for that proxy conflict or supposed proxy conflict. And so it's a really, it's a really mixed picture, I think, in the mood among, among Russians. Finally, 20 mile an hour speed zones. Are they designed more to wind us up than save lives? Ascender Max Tone-Graham makes this case in the magazine... She joins us now, along with Johnny Thelicetis, a councillor for Kensington and Chelsea. Isenda, for the magazine this week, you write that 20 mile an hour speed zones are affecting our daily lives more than Brexit. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your frustration? Well, I, I happen to go around London on the back of my husband's Vespa, and, and every journey now takes t- 10 to 15 minutes longer. When you really go down from 30 to 20, that's a, a third of it, half as long again. So I think that it has taken either... I mean, not that we should be allowed to have fun anymore, but you know, any fun there might have been in a journey is completely gone, certainly from that. And I feel very strongly for people who really need it for their 
commute to actually get from A to B. I, perfect, I completely respect 20 mile an hour limits on little shopping streets and small residential roads, but on thoroughfares, they're called thoroughfares for a reason, they're meant to get you from A to B in an efficient way. What is happening with this blanket, blanket 20 mile an hour limit? I, I just thought it ought to, I ought to say that it is um, affecting my life more mm. than Brexit because the avocados did not run out after all. But as a sender, while they may be frustrating, these um, the 20 mile an hour speed zones, uh, can you not be too careful when it comes to driving through areas where lots of pedestrians may be on the road? Well, what, what, what are pavements for? I mean, I, I went down Park Lane the other night and, and yesterday along the embankment past Tate, uh, Tate Britain. Of course, there were no pedestrians on the road. If there are any pedestrians, they waited to traffic light and cross it, as they always have. I've never got anywhere near to hitting a pedestrian in the many years I've had of going at 30. <laughs> Johnny, as the Transport Councillor for Kensington and Chelsea, you introduced a 20 mile per hour speed zone and were one of the first to do so in London. What did you make of Isenda's argument that these 20 mile an hour limits are a a blight? I wasn't initially persuaded that we should go borough wide and I was really persuaded by the evidence from one of our pilots. We trialled 20 mile an hour limits on several streets across the borough and found that the number of vehicles going above 30 miles an hour dropped by over 70% and the average speeds was falling by about 15 to 20%. So we saw that 20 mile an hour limits were an effective nudge. Uh, When I took on the transport portfolio, I found that from residents, pedestrians, drivers, one of the biggest complaints in my mailbag was about speeding cars. Noisy vehicles too, actually, and sometimes the two are linked. And I know that we've got evidence that people being hit at 30 miles miles an hour are five times more likely to to pass away than people who are hit at 20 miles an hour. So if there's something we can do that's a, a modest nudge that protects our, our residents, then it's it's worth doing. And Johnny, I wonder what has the public reaction been in your area to these new limits? Have you had much of a backlash or do you think that the public are generally supportive? I've been really encouraged by the response. We are, <clears throat> some people say that we're the, the home of the Chelsea tractor and that car is still king in Kensington. But in fact, across all age groups and demographics and parts of the borough, when we consulted on borough-wide 20 mile an hour limits, we found that a majority of people supported the change. So even in a strongly conservative borough where I think there is a perception that we might be more sceptical about these sorts of initiatives, we found a lot of people that have really liked it. We had streets queuing up to join the pilot before we'd gone borough-wide, and since then our evidence is that speeds have come down uh, and that it's reduced the number of collisions. Senator, do you think a large part of the problem here is the messaging that goes with all this? You, you talk at the start of your piece about the 20 is plenty slogan and the slightly annoying, frowny electronic signs that appeared. I mean, would, would you have more time for it if you didn't have this sort of patronising messaging? I don't like the infantilising cartoons of the snail and, 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 and those frowny, frowny, frowny signs, I have to say. Um, but I and I think one of the part of the, one of the great noises these days is a Ferrari kept on the leash, desperate to go at thirty and kept at twenty. That's one of the noisy noisy vehicle noises we hear nowadays. Um, I, I just feel feel for anybody who's actually trying to live their life. And there's some balance in this argument between, of course, the desire for safety and no one wants a pedestrian to die, and the need to to live our lives efficiently. 
and at some proper intuitive speed, it just seems counterintuitive going at 20, and everybody I know has now been clapped with a fine. So, of course, we are obeying it, because we don't all have to. You, you say it's about pedestrians' lives, but could it also be the case that it's about cyclists' lives as well? Because obviously cyclists are on the road and well, they're going hitting, a, they're going but hitting a cyclist in a car at mm. 30 is probably obviously much more damaging than hitting them at 20. I mean, it is that, true, but that's what I mean. I, I think I probably do, in general, approve of cycle lanes which separate cars from cycles. Um, as a cyclist as well, I, 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 have, I do love those. But it is just generally the war against the car is becoming terrifying and you just feel you're being spied on at every second of your life now, someone waiting to pounce, and they're going, is this true about the new app that's going to be de- developed to enable other motorists to photograph one, at, capture one going at 24, and, pr- and send it to the police? I mean, that's just a, a terrifyingly surveillance society, which can't be good. Johnny, what do you make of, of that? Is it, do you think it is right for those sorts of, I suppose, slightly authoritarian practices that Ascenda just, just described there? We already have speed limits of 30 miles an hour on, on most streets. So the principle of controlling for speed is, is long established. All we're discussing here is a question of proportion and whether a 20 mile an hour limit is disproportionate. Now, I've had, in, in my when I did the transport portfolio in, in our borough, very few complaints about that change. And we did see an appreciable fall in the number of collisions and killed and seriously injured collisions in particular. Uh, so if it's a change that our consultations suggest is supported, uh, that does reduce collisions as far as we can tell, then I think it is a proportionate response. Senator, just to finish on, you say that this was in many of the manifestos, but many of us didn't notice. I mean, is it, is it not therefore our own fault? That's what I, say having, the, I say in the piece. Having voted this through. <laughs> well, I didn't vote for Sadiq Khan myself, but, I, but I, I do see it is the way things are going, and it is our fault if we don't campaign. It is true the activists get what they want in these in these cases, often because they're the ones that really can, that most of us who just want to live our lives quietly find ourselves waking up in, in this new in this new. Thank you, Yasenda and Johnny. And that's everything this week. As ever, you can pick up the magazine to read everything we've talked about, including James's piece with a list of the runners and riders. I'm Laura Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. And do join us again next week. A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. If you want the magazine delivered to your door on top of that, it's only £1 a week extra. And your first month is free without obligation. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited.